divine abiding in joy and divine abiding in equanimity. These these two qualities complete the the four Brahma Viharas, Brahma Vihara, Metta, Karuna, Murita, and Upeka. When we intentionally practice them, we're learning to take rest. We're learning to find the kind of rest and relaxation that the connection of metta and only the connection of metta can provide. And to take that deep and profound rest of, of care and protection that only the compassion, the karuna, brahma-vihara can provide. And to take that deep, we wake up, rest and relaxation in pure, unbridled joy. This appreciative consciousness and awareness that only this mudita, brahma-vihara can provide. And taking rest in that wide mind, heart of balance, equanimity, the serenity, deep, peaceful serenity that's attuned to things as they are, that only the upeka brahma-vihara can provide. So we've been learning to find our sanctuaries, our safe harbors, refuge. And when Michelle explained about bowing yesterday, you you see you see it all the time in Asia, in um, India and South Southeast Asia, on different levels. You see people do it, and you'll feel that they just are really doing it out of respect um, for their ancestral and teaching lineages. When you see it in monasteries, you can f- feel um, viscerally. You can feel it as a practice. You can feel people are genuinely taking refuge when they bow to what's called the triple gem, the awakening power within that the word Bud means or Buddha. And Dhamma means the liberating truth. And Sangha, the close, compassionate community of like-minded ones. It's a powerful sense of refuge and, and of uh, literally aligning our our heart, our consciousness, with with our aim, the aim to draw in, draw out these powers of divine abidings, and draw out the liberating wisdom within. You know, Dhamma has these various meanings of the truth, of universal nature. Uh, uh, liberating wisdom. It's just a Pali word, Dhamma. But it, it implies, as also as Michelle was saying yesterday, a truth regardless of religion and philosophy and belief systems. Dhamma is whether or not there are Buddhas. And when Siddhartha Gautama was born, there was no Buddhism. There were many forms of um, 
practices Jainism and various Hinduism traditions uh, still long before uh, Islam and Christianity. And he himself, as I was saying yesterday, was was a rebel, a rebel against convention and um, imposed belief systems and philosophical um, dogmas and the hierarchy of religion in those days held, you know, in, in the, like in the Brahmin class, you inherited spiritual authority, didn't earn it. And, and that was part of what she, you know, he felt there's a truth beyond language and beyond belief systems, beyond religions. And that's what, that's what took him on his path, arduous path and first body denying and then body balancing and, uh, and the approach of the middle path balanced body, emotions, and mental faculties. So how can this be? You know, what is this? Where is this truth that is pointed to uh, by many of the practicing living wisdom traditions? In the 60s set a lot of us on fire in that way, and uh, I spent uh, six years in Hawaii and in, on the mainland and in Asia, trying all kinds of practices. In fact, many of them came through Hawaii as a crossroads, many of the Asians. My first teacher in the 60s was a Tai Chi, was a martial artist and herbalist, Su Yao Pang, and, and he taught these various forms uh, called Ying Yi and Pa Kwa and Tai Chi, and, and they all came out, you know, in the years that I, would, I, I was with him. I first went with him to learn... The, the martial art of Pa Kwa and, and Ying Yi. And only when I was sick did I learn he, he knew acupuncture and herbs because then they came out. You know, and then a year later, other arts that he had, he had known, he came from China with. Uh, and he, in a way, was my first teacher because he'd see me studying all these books, you know, on mysticism and Christian contemplative practice and East Asian contemplative practices and whatnot, and I carried them around, you know, kind of proudly and wanted them to see and notice me and so forth. And then I was once showing him this book by Sri Aurobindo, this great Indian saint. And uh, so he looked interested and he was looking at what I was showing him and I don't remember what it was what I was trying to get him to comment on, but in a moment, he just turned his head in a quizzical way and caught my eye, you know, in that way I've been talking about, and a mentor who, who sees our goodness even long before we know we have it. And he said, he just said, um, the word, the Indian word, Hindu word, moksha, is a word for liberation. He just looked at me, caught my eye, he said, there is no moksha. And I was so excited about this passage on liberation. He said, there is no moksha, there's only now. And I put my books down, you know. I didn't stop reading them or collecting them, but it helped me approach the search in a different way. And it, and it was followed by uh, my first Hawaiian teacher. She was a trained in the kahuna tradition, but uniquely she also traveled to India and, and learned from my uh, Hindu tradition and especially a Buddhist tradition. So she combined you know, the elemental spirituality of Polynesia and Hawaiian um, intuitive knowing, elemental knowing, 
and nature, way, nature's way of knowing our spiritual core with, uh, with what she would bring back from Asia. Uh, and she, you know, she was just a source, an embodiment of, of some of these Brahma-viharas, especially metta and mudita, joy. And, and I was telling a yogi today um, that another teacher, a third teacher, I met her when she was 90 years old. And she was a you know, Southern California Christian mystic. And she was just who she was. She was, just a, she was an entity of her own, you know. Uh, I met her when she was 90 and I was her student until she was 97. I just remember the power and clarity of her blue eyes and how she felt the whole universe would come right through her windows at night alone to show her the truth of things. You know, her attunement, her sort of cosmic attunement. So she was really unique. And, you know, eventually I came across this um, Vipassana tradition from Burma. Uh, And the reason why it instantly felt like a, a root living practice tradition for me, the reason I felt at home with it is because it didn't deny anything else that I had been, and, or anyone else I had been studying with or about. It seemed to integrate it all, synthesize it all, and, and um, validate it all in, into a very powerful, um, practical, um, and immediate way of understanding, of bringing all this out of the intellect you know, and into a, a vivid feeling understanding. So that was that, you know, and I never turned back once I found this particular lineage. It was years before I met the, um, uh, one of the main uh, heirs or lineage holders, Mahasi, who was my teacher's teacher because of the difficulty of getting in, into Burma. But still, I just, I practice, as I've mentioned before, with friends who, who knew who knew the technique and how, how to teach aspects of the practice until I until I um, stumbled upon my teacher, you know, not really looking for a teacher. So it's it's it's, a, it's valuable to you know appreciate that it's not in the language. the The Pali words that we're using are so because, like Hawaiian, you know, it was a it was a living oral tradition it was never put down in words until centuries and centuries later. So Pali was a vernacular, spoken vernacular, in the area where Gotama, the Buddha to be, lived. And then, and then it was memorized by these brilliant nuns and monks around them who had like this capacity for photographic memory, detailed memory. And 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 why, um, if you study some of the discourses or suttas, you see the they come in cadence and repetition. It's a way of holding that memory. It was three or four centuries of transmission in oral manner. We, before they began scribing them down, they take a pointed piece of metal and put it in a fire and burn in letters in, on palm leaves in Sri Lanka. That's why you, you see, even today, the Sri Lankan script, Burmese script, is rounded. You know, because if you had tried to make straight lines, it would cut, rather than going you know, to make the the more indelible 
circular types of script. If we get that, you know, it, it helps us sort of sidestep um, potential blockages from, from the familiar. Like we often use the, the poly words just because there's not an adequate word or, you know, there's just a lot of association with the word metta or the word, uh, or, I mean, the word love or joy, where the, the meaning is quite profound. And it takes quite an articulation of, poetic cluster of wording, you know, and and delivery to make sense in English of what's of the potency of what's meant in Pali. You know, for example, there's twenty seven Pali words for desire. And and most of those desires are healthy desires. And we hear teaching so much about, you know, non attachment and desires that cause the suffering and whatnot. It's so simplistic. And throws us so off because both the word for dukkha, you know, means so much more than suffering, as Michelle was saying last night, and and uh, and desire is only a few entangling desires, or what I call insatiable desires, desires that just keep feeding on themselves. It's never enough, you know. And rather than filling legitimate needs. It's just a cycle of neediness that's never fulfilled. A cycle of wanting that just makes more wanting. There's just a few of those kinds, and the, the Buddhist teachings point to them so that we can understand them. We can feel that, that thirsting in the body and the difference between the kind of thirsting that can never be quenched and the kind that can. Yeah. The desire for liberation, the desire for unconditional love, to be love and be loved that we've all had from time immemorial and all our ancestors before us is quenchable. Otherwise, as the Buddha said, he wouldn't have taught what he found. You know, if, if, the, if, if there wasn't a freedom beyond just the cycle of, of desire and entanglement and then more desire and more entanglement, if there wasn't a, a, a perfect peace, you know, a perfect connected non-attachment uh, and a path to that, a middle path to that, a balanced one. He wouldn't have taught this. He wouldn't have taught these teachings. An, an example I love to give about the, the restorative nature of our practices, that is how we just create the space for it, it happens. And if we're lucky, it happens if we don't read a single wise word from a book or hear anything from a tape or if there's no teachers in front of us. And then an example came from a good friend of mine. He's an Australian monk. Um, And he was a hippie traveling around Southeast Asia in the 70s. And around 1977, he was in southern Thailand and expressed a desire to meet his friend's teacher, his Thai friend's Thai teacher, Ajahn. Ajahn is a name for a respected teacher in Thailand. And his friend kept saying, okay, let's go, we'll go, I'll take you. You know, but it was always tomorrow. My friend was a little nervous. He had long hair and he saw that, you know, the monks had no hair and wore these strange dresses and stuff. And he thought, wait a minute, you know, do I really want to be face to face with 
you know, what felt quite intimidating and attractive at the same time. But finally, he said, okay, you know, we'll meet in the morning at 8 or 7, 7 in the morning, it's appropriate time after they do the alms, alms rounds. Um, but he woke up early and kind of snuck out of his guest house thinking he'd go down to the beach and escape another, you know, opportunity to meet the, uh, his friend's teacher. But his friend knew him pretty well by then. So he was there <laughs> waiting for him and took him to the, to the Wat. The Wat is the Thai word for temple. It was one of those water drop connection meetings, you know, instant connection, reciprocal kind of recognition, teacher to student, student to teacher. He stayed. Before long, he ordained as a novice, you know, like a young monk, um, where you don't take all the rules yet and just sort of l- learn the ways of the uh, uh, the monkhood and you know how to wear the robes and whatnot, how to behave and show res- respect and just some basics. And then in a year, he took a full ordination. And then he began, you know, ser- sort of seriously following the way. You wake up at 3.30 and you go, go on alms round at dawn and just start to follow uh, and internalize this ancient 2,600-year-old tradition. And then he began being interested in meditation. People would come by. This is a, a popular Wat back in those days. And people would drop by and he started to hear of this famous teaching monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa, in, the, in another Wat up north, Wat Swan Mok, where I had spent some months myself a few years later. He started to hint to his teacher that he wanted to go vi- visit this province or this Wat was, although he didn't mention the Wat or the teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He just said, I'd like to go to Suratani and I think your family, you have family there. Perhaps I could bring them some gifts or presents, you know. And, you know, monks often don't say anything. They just he just heard that and went on with his business and he mentioned it a second time and then the proverbial third time he suggested he go to Suratani province and take some gifts for his teacher's family. His teacher looked at him and said, Tejadamo, that's his name, Tejadamo, what do you want? <laughs> and he said, well, I want, to go, I want to go and learn meditation. She said, well, why didn't you tell me? It's like after a year of the monster. <laughs> you know, we'll meet tonight at the old teak Dhamma Hall. And here's the keys, you know, for the gate. We'll be by ourselves since it's an old, you know, sacred meditation hall. So at six, Teja Dhamma was there and excited, ready to learn meditation. And they went in, and they were the only ones in this beautiful old silent hall hall. And they sat from six to eight o'clock, and not a word was spoken. Eight o'clock, you know, teacher got up, and uh, they locked up. And every night, that's what they did for two years. <laughs> no instruction. And Tejadamo said, you know, after a while, you just go through it all. 
You just see it all, you know, and you get bored with your own boredom and you get, you get uh, tired of your restlessness and you just somehow overcome your doubts and, you know, like the mind knows how to regenerate itself. The heart knows how to come into stillness by itself. It needs no religion. It needs no language. It really needs no verbal teaching. I mean, that's how the Buddha did it. After first getting a lot of teachings and excelling at them, and then being asked to teach with the teachers he was with, and they were all powerful practices uh, and generative of very subtle, nuanced states of consciousness. You know, John is like what they call cosmic consciousness or God consciousness or what or whatnot. But he felt it wasn't completely free. He still felt ego in there, identification. He didn't feel really the end of the roots of greed, hatred, delusion. And so that's when he, you know, looked for another way. And as you call as you recall, he remembered how when he was just a boy, that fresh, joyous oneness. And he felt like only from happiness, you know, can we we enter that state of knowing, that deep state of knowing, beyond personality, beyond life and death. So of all the kind of teaching stories, this one to me evokes like what I finally got from my teacher after getting really good instruction and I trusted him so much, uh, like I'd never trusted anyone before, so I just did everything he said. And you know, honed, honed all the ways of practice and and uh, you know, moving through the different capacities to understand body, feelings, mind, and phenomena and senses and so forth. And then one day I came in for an interview, and his instruction before I left was two words: do nothing. And my response, you know, was panic and <laughs> okay well uh, should I just go back to the breath you know or just abide you know in this loving kindness or the the senses and whatever I said his response was do nothing and it was about three days of that when I'd come in I'd been trying to do nothing I was just <laughs> dragging my you know <laughs> ragged tears and coming in and he just said, looked at me and just said, you know, hold on to nothing. And finally, I just, I got it, you know, and I just sort of, I let go of everything. At a point, you let go of the teachings, the teacher, the tradition, just let go of everything, the whole system, you know, all the, the package that comes that, with teachings, of course, we're lucky to have these instructions. And without them, and without the ordained sangha of nuns and monks who have transmitted, memorized and transmitted these into the time of writing, and you know, who takes such great care and respect uh, to protect uh, original teachings in a time when they're so easily assimilated and they just start to spread out and get diluted in culture and they become items unto themselves. You know, in many cases, quite helpful. All the ways mindfulness is used in our culture, really quite helpful. But out of the context of the liberating path, um, 
it's very different. You know, mindfulness uh, in pain clinics is essential for people to learn to live with sort of incurable pain. But mindfulness in the context of a of the path of liberation and understanding and transcending, going beyond the the known, you know, is very very different, and it attracts other powerful, associated, skillful states, which include these four Brahma-viharas. Joy is one of the most crucial ones because it has to do with that part of ourselves that feels bereft of, of having our goodness mirrored. You know, all our issues of unworthiness, self-loathing, uh, not being good or good enough, and not being valued, uh, are, are, are the first thing that this joy starts to, to feed. Um, far enemy of joy, envy and, and jealousy. You know, envy is when we don't want someone to have what they have, and jealousy is wanting to have what they have. And that is what's rooted in feelings of, of unworthiness and, and uh, worthlessness. When we start to kind of open up to this pure joy that's a, that abides within us, we start to give it some space, and we start to feel safe enough to let it emerge and have a, the feeling tone of it in the body. It's one of the first things that it starts to uplift. Maybe it's, we start to feel jealousy and envy in our lives, in our imagination, in our fantasies, in our mental proliferation, in other yogis. In, you know, in ourselves even, our capacity yesterday versus today. It's comparing mine in a way. Jealousy and envy is a way that our culture has taught us to measure, compete, control, compare, and so forth. And it's a burden. It's just really tiring. You know, to, to think, to have those kind of thoughts, to be, to have thoughts controlled by those energies of comparing and competing and analyzing and the jealousy and envy and division that causes the fracturing to our system. So those waters of murita, uh, unbridled joy, just pure happiness for no reason at all, you know, and taking delight in other people's joy. That's why it's called also appreciative heart, appreciative consciousness, because we don't appreciate very easily. We compare, we measure ourselves against it our more poignantly, we have envy or jealousy. So to allow that appreciative, empathetic joy out and truly take delight. You know, just remembering the little boy or the little girl in this coming home with our watercolors and showing it to whoever's at home, our dad or our mom, you know. And sort of needing that healthy pride, that glint in the eye, Oh, it's such a beautiful watercolor. You know, we're doing that while Pasha was here every night. Uh, before he goes to bed, I'd sit there with him and watch him watercolor. You know, and you pour your sense of worth and value and goodness and things like that at that age. And you just need an affirming, wow, you know, that parental pride. Instead, the parent talks about themselves, what they're going through or something, issue on their mind. And it's like the paper, it's just a piece of paper. You know, there's no poem or painting 
And that's one of those times where we close up a little bit, we contract, we enfold and cover. The numbness or a, a, our fantasizing mind or powerful intellect or anger, fear, rage, all protective measures kind of build up that way. And, you know, eventually, whether we can articulate it or not, it's a kind of betrayal. You know, so what's supposed to happen between people, between friends, between children and parents is this transmission of you're good. You're not only good, you're really good. You're good for no reason at all. You don't have to do anything to be good. You know, you're just really good. And to get that message again and again in so many different ways. For a bit of the 70s, I was living in Sri Lanka, um, single parenting our two-year-old, and we're living on the edge of a village, or uh, edge of a forest, in a friend's guest house. We had become like family. And Chandra came running out of the jungle one morning saying, Daddy, Daddy, there's a mad elephant running out of the forest. You know, so I was a fairly decent, affirming father. You know, so it was like, you know, a poem, a water painting. I was saying, oh, cool, Chandra, you know, that must be awesome. What does he look like? (laughs) And about that time, I hear this tremendous crashing and trumpeting roar, you know, of an elephant. And I go behind our, our house and and indeed, it's a crowd of people and dust in the midst of them, this massive, tusted elephant running out of the jungle. And he's, and he's within a couple hundred meters of the main road into Kandy. We're living in the hill province of Sri Lanka, the Kandy province. And, and it would have been a disaster, you know, if he started running down the road to, into, the vill- into the main town. And there were, uh, you know, gangs of people would be picking up the chain that was on his left leg and wrapping it around huge trees, like big jackfruit trees. When you see chains and elephants together, don't be deluded. You know, if they want to go, it was just nothing. Those big jackfruit trees just went down, you know, or the chain just cut right through. Nothing would stop it until finally the mahout, the young person who usually grows up with the elephant and is his best friend, um, catches up to the elephant and, and, and you know, yells above the cacophony of sounds and noise and you know, just sort of terror and, and rage in the air. And the elephant hears him. And just at the road, the main road, the elephant starts to calm down and allows the mahout near to him, you know, and and picks him up on his trunk, lets him on top, so the mahout can then, you know, regain the harmony of relationship with him. What had happened? Well, this is the temple elephant from the uh, candy temple of the tooth. It has a, supposedly has a tooth relic of the Buddha. And so it's just the sacred animal, you know, living at the at the temple, but it gets hired out to do work. And it was in the jungle, um, building, constructing some resort, something like that. And it had certain hours. And it had a 
just like a contract that we might have, you know, with our employers. It it worked from maybe it was from seven to eleven, and then taken down to the Mahaveli River for a bath and four hundred pounds of lunch. The contractor was behind schedule and started to work past eleven. So this went on for three or four days, you know. Eleven came by and eleven thirty, twelve. About the third or fourth day of this, the elephant just felt completely betrayed. And he completely, completely destroyed everything he helped build the past three days, you know, of his contract. <laughs> and started running himself, just wild, who knows where, maybe for the river. Just angry, rage, rageful. You know, that elephant lives within us. It's, it's a cry for connection. It's the rage we feel when we feel betrayed, when we feel disconnected, when an arrangement that we trusted is broken. And it, it took all that the hoot had and years of relationship to re-instill that trust, that where, again, the, the elephant felt valued, you know, worthy of respect. This is when he will willing to work, and this is when he gets to bathe and eat. They stopped him working at 10.30 from now on. <laughs> Extra hour at the bathing grounds. We can re- all relate to that. you know. We can all understand that. I mean, it's important to feel those feelings in our body and to understand there's nothing wrong with rage, when we, certainly when we understand it as a cry for connection, you know, and a call for uh, reestablishing trust that's been broken. The, these Brahma-viharas in, in particular, I mean, they all work together. Remember, they're, you can't, when one's up, they're all up. But the particular gift of the murita is this restoration of our sense of innate worthiness, just of being, that unbridled-like passion for life, childlike oneness with life, not for anything we've done or anything we've not done to deserve it, we deserve it just for the fact of being. And this murita restores that. The near enemy, it's good to get familiar with too, because it masquerades as that kind of joy, and, and we can get entangled that way. And, and this is where our teachings can help, help illuminate and illustrate what may look like murita joy. It's some kind of joy with a hook. It's like, yes, I appreciate your joy, I appreciate your success, I appreciate your accomplishment, I take delight and feel joy in your joy, but, and that but is, we want something. We want a piece of it. You know, we, we, we want to, if we help that person's joy, we want credit. If the person just suddenly, you know, won the lottery or something, we're so happy for your joy, you know, and, you know, we want to, um, We need a meditation center and maybe you want to come and look at our land and, you know, I so appreciate that you have all this wealth in your life now, you know, but to this but, an and, you know, or even just feeling important when someone is feeling so successful or accomplished in their life, so good, just wanting to be in that. You know, and there's a legitimate need. There's a legitimate want, a healthy desire 
to let some of that rub off. We get that around good teachers. And it's just to understand where the legitimate need turns into an insatiable neediness, where there's really a strong attachment there. That's attached joy. That's attached mudita. It's a fake mudita. It's not that uh, unconditional delight in, in the, wherever we see happiness, joy, success. Like the trembling of heart that karuna is when, we, when the heart wants to care for or protect wherever there's anguish or discord or anxiety or suffering. The mudita heart dances in resonance, in celebration with wherever we see a joy, the song of a bird, you know, the leaping of a gazelle, the smile, you know, on a friend's face. In fact, in 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 practicing this in the in the more formulaic traditions, we start with ourself or a benefactor for metta, and for karuna, we usually choose someone who's currently suffering in some way, but not too close to us, where it's easy to slide into grief, and not too distant, you know, that we can't feel some traction there. So someone who's in some way going through a hard time, physically, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, or even someone who seems to be doing really good, but we recognize with our wisdom that their actions are going to lead to suffering. All those can be in the category of a healthy prime, primary karuna or compassion subject. For mudita, it's really easy. You just think of someone you care so much about there's no question of ever feeling doubt or comparing or jealousy or envy. Just thinking about them makes you smile. And thinking about them, enjoying happiness and success and accomplishment and being in a good place in their lives makes your heart sing. That's the initial mudita subject. That gets it going. It starts to pull it out. you know. And then we abide. And then we become the subject and then anyone else or all beings, let it just move out that way. Abide and pervade. Upeka. This is a good poem for the Brahma Vihara of Balance by Juan Ramon Jimenez. He writes, I have a feeling that my boat has struck down there in the depths against a great thing and nothing happens. Nothing. Silence. Waves. Nothing happens? Or has everything happened? And are we standing now quietly in the new life? Feeling from that poem helps to remove us from what can feel like upeka, equanimity, or its near enemy, indifference, disconnect. The near enemy of upeka isn't sensitive. It doesn't have a caring sense of connection. And is a kind of distancing, a numbing out. 
it's it's the it's when we feel overwhelmed by what's if we watch the news if we're unfortunate to watch the news or read the news at times I don't very much because that's what I would do you know I just fall back to an ancient habit of numbing out you know I want to know just enough to where I can put my heart and make a difference uh, and, um, and and not be overwhelmed because numbing out is a is a excellent and expedient survival strategy, you know, protective measure, just to not have to feel when it seems so crazy. And, and one thing about the information technology world is we learn what so, so immediately about so many things going on in the world, and it's not so filtered. When it's turned off, there's a lot of really good things. You know, where I go and where I travel and people I'm around and retreats like this, I have a lot of hope at what the goodness and the transformative power of goodness in people can do. You know, if I were only looking at the sensational that's broadcast through IT, I wouldn't feel that connection. I'd be really hard-pressed. I'd really have to pull up my years of practices, you know, to to overcome that because it's just blasting moment to moment. Of course we numb out. Of course we disconnect. And of course we can pretend we're interested and listen, but our mind is, our mind goes elsewhere. You know, when someone's telling us about their success and we can't quite feel the joy, you know, that they'd like us to celebrate in their with their life. True equanimity is the cause for the most close, intimate relations, the most intimacy, the most profound connectedness. All the other Brahma-viharas are there, but it's because of the Upeka Brahma-vihara that we slide less and less in, into the conditioned kinds of you know demanding love or drown in the overwhelm of sorrow and grief and the pain in the world and, and, and feel the neediness so much to be around joy rather than to learn to cultivate the joy within ourselves. It's the equanimity that lifts us out. It's the equanimity that is able to handle these extremes or this, this sort of fiction of opposites, so-called good and the bad, the pleasure and the pain, the praise and the blame, the gain and the loss, that's just every day. That's just every sitting, you know, every moment. Experience, if you look closely, has a feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if we're not mindful, there's bound to be attachment to the pleasant and bound to be aversion or fear of the unpleasant and confusion or bewilderment of the neutral. If we are present with mindfulness or metta, or brahma viharas, Pleasant is just what it is. It's pleasant. And of course it's beautiful and you feel it all the more. Have all the more of an intimacy with what's pleasurable and joyful and beautiful about the world when there's no attachment. Because hidden in attachment, of course, is fear of its going away and loss, which is inevitable. But without the attachment, without the fear, we can so touch that moment of joy and appreciate it with wisdom, knowing that that's the way the world revolves. There's a birth and death in every moment. And with the unpleasant, the same thing. There's this knowing that it's going to pass. And without knowing 
unpleasant. We can never touch compassion. You know, without knowing that there's pain in the world, physical and mental and emotional pain, how can we grow our hearts? How can we open you know, to that tender and sensitive caring and learn to protect ourselves and others? That's what makes equanimity um, allow us to be so close and so intimate with life. And also with that presence, neutral feeling is equanimity. Rather than just a neutral feeling that, that can be a disconnect, you know, or numbing out, or insensitive, or spacing, or bewilderment, neutral feeling tone is upeka, equanimity. Just balance. We're there regardless. We're able to hold with that equanimous heart the joys and sorrows and the gains and the losses. Uh, and from that act with great wisdom, our fierce compassion is necessary. In one of the birth stories of the, the lives of the Buddha, um, he's, he's, he's born in a heavenly realm. <clears throat> Deva is the Pali word for like these heaven realms. <clears throat> in the Buddhist cosmology, we've all been there many times. And um, it's just a result of expressing our goodness that we get to spend these lives in these delightful heaven realms where there's heavenly or celestial music and celestial uh, sensations and celestial everything, you know, that's really delightful. So he was born in this particular deva realm called the realm of the 33 gods and goddesses. And he's sitting on his throne and lifetimes in these realms are like couple hundred thousand earth years. So every couple thousand years, the throne glows when there's something going on in the world, something really good or something really bad. So he, he feels it heat up. Saka is the name of the, the god of the 33. And his, his throne glows. So he's no, he, he knows something's up on earth. So he uses his psychic vision, you know, to look through the, the realms of existence down to the earth realm. And the first thing he sees is black smoke. And he sees people without enough food and children crying and not being cared for and old schools crumbling and and armies fighting and rivers polluted and discord everywhere and elders not being respected. and It's, a, it's, an, it's an awful time on earth. And he thinks, I'll try to make a difference, you know, motivated by compassion. And so he, he transforms himself into a forester, all dressed in leathers and bow and arrow and so forth. And beside him is his favorite being, big blue, this giant, fierce dog who looks so mellow and tame one moment but, you know, if he knows that he has to be protective, he, his eyes glow like coals and his nose, his nose breathes flames. So he got really excited. He knew they were on a mission, so flames came out. <laughs> coals glowed from his eyes and heat from his, you know, growly, snarly, toothy mouth. <laughs> and they went down through the realms. 
And they peered outside this huge gate, uh, this protected castle, and the sentinels were there. Who are you? And and the and Saka says, "Well, I'm a forester, as you can see, and this is Big Blue." And he let out you know, dragon flames and burning coal eyes, and the, the sentinels froze, and they quickly ordered all the gates to be shut, the four corners or the four sides of the castle grounds. But in the same moment, they both leaped over the wall effortlessly and landed in the village square. And all the people gathered around, you know, shaking and frightened. And the king and the queen were up in the tower looking down, you know, what's going on? The foresters silent for a long time and everyone's gathering around and feeling this, looking at this dragon-like blue, midnight blue dog and, you know, what's up? What do you want? And the forester, Saka, says, Big Blue is hungry. No problem, you know, yells the king and orders all the food from the morning to be brought, this huge, big pile of food. And Big Blue just takes it down in a gulp. Forrester says, Big Blue is still hungry. So all the food of the last few days and the future few days, everything that's in the castle grounds is brought up and it's, you know, would be enough food to fill the lodge. Big Blue just sculpts it all down, effortlessly. (laughs) Saka says, Big Blue is still hungry. And the king and queen, they order everyone to go out, you know, all around quickly with all the carts, um, oxen carts, and gather all the, you know, fresh grains and corns and fruits and vegetables, everything, until there's this mountain of food filling the entire grounds of the of the the castle. Big blue whoosh, takes it all in. <laughs> like he's not satisfied, you know, it's like that insatiable thirst and need. Nothing will do. Big blue's still hungry. And the king and the queen and the ministers, they all plead, What do you want? You know, I mean, we've given you all the food. It's we, we don't understand. We've this, this dog doesn't seem to be satisfied. Are you going to eat us? You know, And the, at that moment, the forester begins to transform back into his rainbow deva body, Saka, and said, Big Blackie wants to consume all your corruption and all your pollution and all your betrayals. In all the ways that you haven't been caring for each other, your elders, educating your children, taking care of your environment, you know, cutting down your forests. He wants to consume all that bad energy, you know, all that avarice and greed and ill will and delusion. And they started to kind of rise up slowly, you know. And Big Blue, his flames kind of cool down and he puts out this energetic blue vibe. Everyone starts to feel really peaceful. And they recognize that the forester was some kind of deva, some kind of god. But they're so shaken up by this event and the fierce compassion that these two figures presented, Saka the forester and and Big Blue, that they really did transform. And back up in the in the realm of the 33, Tava back on the throne, so, Bodhi, the Saka looks down and sees that they're improving, you know. 
few minutes go by as few years in earth time and he sees that everything is improved and he smiles and pets big blue by his side that's a good example of you know connection compassion in its fierce mode making boundaries with a really pure motivation and of course after the transformation the joy you can take in seeing the change and celebrating people's goodness uh, and the the equanimity the really cooled out mind that is so intimate so close so attuned upeka is an attunement with things as they are not a it's not thrown by what's alluring attractive by what we may want and it's not intimidated by what's repulsive <clears throat> or seemingly you know attacking it's just it's like what i call bamboo mind its strength is in its vulnerability in its hollowness in its ability to yield and yet be firm it just comes back to balance no matter how wildly blown this way or that comes back to center just before one of the last times i was allowed in burma um the monk that we teach with there last 15 years we've been holding these retreats called fusion retreats it's east and west fusion it's ordained monk and lay person uh, and as michelle's been teaching that retreat male and female and uh, tradition and contemporary you know because we keep trying to relanguage and present the teachings in ways that are relevant to our psyche and ways emotional um presence and so forth so this fusion retreat is is get two for one you know you get the the original transmission as it's passed down by monks and nuns for 2600 years and you get it also through seasoned western teachers who have uh, are able to present them in relevant ways and relanguage them The Sagain Hills is where this monastery is and it sits on the the edge of the Irrawaddy River one of the great rivers of the world and and the hills are about 15 kilometers north to south and maybe two or three east to west uh, on the west bank and they're ancient like 2000 years of um of practice there there's caves old and some in ruins and some restored and so forth thousands of caves maybe 700 nunneries and monasteries all spiritual all buddhist spiritual roads in some way or another lead to the sagain hills because when you start going back in lineages everyone has a teacher who who practiced there in one of those caves or monasteries so one of the last people I was fortunate to meet because he was 103 and he wasn't he wasn't there the next year he passed away It was maybe a few kilometers along the river north and then into the Sagain hills there's there are these enchanting hills you can easily get lost in them because they they roll and and they seem to change as you, as you move about you know and turn and curve and this an enchantment of dhamma 
so we arrived at this glen of an old monastery and it was quiet and this really ancient monk was in his room and it was like walking into light it was quite a some it was quite a while before I realized he was completely blind and barely able to hear and yet he wanted to know who each of us was and so his attendant had to yell very loud in his ears each of our names until he got it you know Stephen Smith magnified mm-hmm. 10 times Hawaii until he could feel the name and then and then he would take my hands and I'd feel his hands took both my hands take my hand with both his hands and then I put my hand too and this is maybe 10 years ago and I still feel the feeling when I think of him and the feeling were the feeling was this warm cool hands you know, the warmth of metta and the, and the coolness of equanimity or the warmth of joy and care and, and the coolness of balanced serene mind and then we were there for two or three hours I don't remember what we shared and when we left it was the same and the touch of the hands, the taking of the hands, and the feeling of that cool warmth, or warm coolness. And then he gave a blessing to each of us. It was like a blessing and a transmission teaching, all in one. Very simple, and one line. And it says it all to these teachings. May you be free of even one unskillful mind moment. Coming from his depth, his profound liberation, connection, joy, equanimity, and, and understanding. May, may we be free of even one unskillful mind moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.